Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. This episode this week this time around we will be discussing the big sleep and by we i mean myself and my special co-host guest co-host guest host guest here on the pod matthew david metcalf armstrong the one and only <laughs> and we'll send your nickname uh <laughs> the you host... can do that that's fine <laughs> the well, no, that's private. I'll keep it for me. Uh, Matthew is the host of the very popular Ghost Thropology podcast, which you can find out more about at the kmmamedia.com. But we'll talk more about Matthew and to Matthew in just a second. First, a couple of quick announcements. As you know, about kmmamedia.com, you can find show notes, you can find resources, you can find links, you can find the Zoom information for our ongoing 2021 Summer Watch, which is every week on Tuesday nights, Jennifer and I and a rotating cast of other random people discuss the television Netflix phenomenon of Shadow and Bone based on the book. And we also have an episode about the book. Anyways, that's our summer thing that's going on. And then we have our regular episodes, as you know. And again, you can find out all about that on that website. Also, you can find our Patreon link so you can support us. $5 a month helps us keep affording to do this, which is great. You are also welcome to email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram. And now on with the show. The Big Sleep, 1939 hard-boiled crime novel by American-British writer Raymond Chandler, the first to feature the detective Philip Marlowe. It has been adapted for film twice in 1946 and again in 1978. Today we will be discussing the 1946 American film noir, The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks. The film stars Humphrey Bogart as private detective Philip Marlowe and Lauren Bacall as Vivian Rutledge in a story about the, quote, process of a criminal investigation, not its results, unquote. William Faulkner and a few other people helped co-write the screenplay. Here is our recap. First, the book. Private investigator Philip Marlowe is called to the home of a wealthy and elderly General Sturwood in the month of October. He wants Marlowe to deal with an attempt by a bookseller named Arthur Giger to blackmail his wild young daughter, Carmen. She had previously been blackmailed by a man named Joe Brady. Sternwood mentions that his other older daughter, Vivian, is in a loveless marriage with a man named Rusty Regan, who has disappeared. On Marlowe's way out, Vivian wonders if he has been hired to find Regan, 
but Marlo will not say. Marlo investigates Giger's bookstore, first via some research of the library and then by testing Agnes, the clerk. He determines that the store is a pornography lending library. He confirms this by checking with another nearby bookseller. He follows Giger home, stakes at this house, sees Carmen enter. Later, he hears a scream, followed by gunshots and two cars speeding away. He rushes in to find Giger dead and Carmen drugged and naked in front of an empty camera. He takes her home, but when he returns, Giger's body is gone. He quickly leaves. The next day, the police call to let him know that the Sternwood's car has been found driven off a pier with their chauffeur dead inside. It appears that he was hit on the head before the car entered the water. The police ask Marlowe if he's looking for Regan. He doesn't answer. Marlowe stakes out the bookstore and sees its inventory being moved to Brody's home. Vivian comes to his office and says that Carmen is being blackmailed with a nude photo from the previous night. She also mentions gambling at the casino of Eddie Mars and volunteers that Eddie's wife Mona ran off with Rusty. Marlowe revisits Giger's house and finds Carmen trying to get in. They look for the photos, but she plays dumb about the night before. Eddie suddenly enters. He says he is Giger's landlord and he's looking for him. Eddie demands to know why Marlowe is there. Marlowe takes no notice and states that he is no threat to him. Marlowe goes to Brody's home and finds him with Agnes, that bookstore clerk. Marlowe tells Brody that he knows that they are taking over the lending library and blackmailing Carmen with the nude photos. Carmen forces her way in with a gun and demands the photos, but Marlowe takes the gun and makes her leave. Marlowe interrogates Brody further and pieces together the story. Giger was blackmailing Carmen. The family driver, Owen, did not like it, so he snuck in and killed Giger, then took the film off of Carmen. Brody was staking out the house, and then he pursued the driver, knocked him out, stole the film, possibly pushed the car off the pier. Suddenly, the doorbell rings, and Brody is shot dead. Marlo gives chase and catches Giger's male lover, who shot Brody, thinking that Brody had killed Giger. He's also hidden Giger's body so he could remove his own belongings before the police got wind of the murder. So the case is over, pretty much, but Marlowe is nagged by Roasty's disappearance. The police accept that he simply ran off with Mona, since she is also missing, and since Eddie would not risk committing a murder in which he would be the obvious prime suspect. Mars calls Marlowe to his casino and seems to be nonchalant about everything. Vivian is also there, and Marlowe senses something between her and Mars. He drives her home, and she tries to seduce him, but he rejects her advances. When he gets home, he finds Carmen has snuck into his bed, but he rejects her as well. A man named Harry Jones enters. This is Agnes's new partner. He approaches Marlowe and offers to tell him the location of Mona. Marlowe plans to meet him later, but Eddie's henchman Canino is suspicious of Jones and Agnes's intentions, and he kills Jones. Marlowe manages to meet Agnes anyway and receive the information. He goes to the location, but Canino, with the help of Art Huck, the garage man, jumps him and knocks him out. When Marlowe awakens, he's tied up and Mona's there with him. She says she has not seen Rusty in months. She only hid out to help Eddie and insists that Eddie did not kill Rusty. She frees Marlowe and he shoots and kills Canino. The next day, Marlowe visits General Sternwood, who remains curious about Rusty's whereabouts and offers Marlowe an additional $1,000 if he's able to locate him. On the way out, Marlowe returns Carmen's gun to her and she asks him to teach her how to shoot. They go to an abandoned field where she tries to kill him, but he has loaded the gun with blanks and merely laughs at her. The shock causes Carmen to have an epileptic seizure. Marlowe brings her back and tells Vivian he has guessed the truth. Carmen came on to Rusty. He spurned her, so she killed him. Eddie, who'd been backing Giger, helped Vivian conceal it by helping to dispose of Rusty's body, inventing a story about his wife running off with Rusty and then blackmailing her, Vivian, himself. 
Vivian says she did it all to keep everything from her father so he would not despise his own daughters. She promises to have Carmen institutionalized. With the case now officially over, Marlo goes to a local bar, orders several double scotches. While drinking, he begins to think about Mona, but he never saw her again. And if that was not complicated enough, they made it more complicated via this movie. Here's our movie recap. Private detective Philip Marlowe is summoned to the mansion of General Sternwood, who wants to resolve gambling debts that his daughter Carmen owes to bookseller Arthur Giger. As Marlowe is leaving, Sternwood's da- older daughter Vivian stops him. She suspects her father's true motive for hiring a detective is to find his protege, Sean Regan, who has disappeared a month earlier. Marlowe first does some research at the library, then goes to Giger's shop, which is minded by Agnes. He tests her knowledge about rare books, confirms that the store is a front. Then he spends a lovely afternoon with another lovely bookseller and then follows Giger home. Hearing a gunshot and hearing a woman scream, he breaks in to find Giger's body in a drugged Carmen, not naked this time, as well as a hidden camera empty of film. After taking Carmen home, he returns and discovers that the body has disappeared. During the night, Marlowe learns that Sternwood's driver, Owen Taylor, has been found dead in a limo floating off of the Lido Pier, having been struck on the back of the head. Vivian comes to Marlowe's office the next morning with scandalous pictures of Carmen that she received with the blackmail demand for the negatives. Marlowe returns to Giger's bookstore and follows a car to the apartment of Joe Brody, a gambler who previously blackmailed General Sternwood. He then finds Carmen in Giger's house when she insists that it was Brody who killed Giger. They are interrupted by the landlord, gangster Eddie Mars. Marlowe goes to Brody's apartment where he finds Agnes and Vivian. They are interrupted by Carmen who wants her photos. Marlowe disarms her, sends Vivian and Carmen home. Brody admits that it was he who was behind the blackmailing having stolen the negatives from Taylor but then has to answer the door and is shot dead. Marlowe chases the killer and apprehends Carol. This is Giger's former driver who believes that Brody is swindling him. Carol's a man in this so don't be confused by the name. Anyways Marlowe calls the police they're going to arrest Carol. Marlowe and Vivian have a drink and she pays him and there's a lot of flirting. Horse flirting. Dirty dirty horse flirting. Marlowe visits Mars's casino where he asks about Regan, who is supposed to have run off with Mars's wife. Mars is evasive and tells Marlowe that Vivian is running up gambling debts. Vivian wins a big wager, then wants Marlowe to take her home. A stooge of Mars's attempts to rob Vivian, but Marlowe knocks him out while driving back. Marlowe presses Vivian for her connection with Mars, but she admits nothing. Back at home, Marlowe finds a flirtatious Carmen waiting for him. She says she did not like Regan and mentions that Mars calls Vivian frequently. When she attempts to seduce Marlowe, he throws her out. The next day, Vivian tells him that he can stop looking for Regan. He's been found in Mexico. She's going to go see him. La la la, case is done. But... Mars has Marlowe beaten up to stop him from investigating further. He is found by Harry Jones, an associate of Agnes, and besotted with her. Jones conveys her offer to reveal the location of Mars's wife for $200. When Marlowe goes to meet him and be taken to where she is hiding, he spots Canino, a gunman hired by Mars, who's there to find Agnes. Canino poisons Jones after he discloses Agnes's location, which turns out to be false. Agnes telephones the office while Marlowe is still there and he arranges to meet her. She has seen Mona Mars behind an auto repair shop near the town called Rialto. When he gets there, Marlowe is attacked by Canino. He awakens tied up with Mona watching him. Vivian is also there. She frees Marlowe, allows him to get his gun, and he kills Canino. Then the two of them drive back together. We're forgetting completely about Mona. She's no longer a part of the story. Anyways, Marlowe calls Mars from Giger's house, pretending to still be in Rialto. Mars arrives with four men who set up an ambush outside. When Mars enters, Marlowe reveals that he has discerned the truth. Mars has been blackmailing Vivian as her sister Carmen has killed Regan. He then forces Mars outside where he is shot by his own men. 
Marlow then calls the police, telling them that Mars was the one who killed Regan. He also convinces Vivian that her sister needs psychiatric care for her drug addiction. The two of them are now in love, so it's a happy ending. The end. Yay. Okay, so first off, we watched the 1946 version. Yes. There's actually a 1945 version. And the 1945 version, it's the same film, but cut differently. And it includes some things from the book that were cut from the final version of the film. And it doesn't include other things. The whole right. dirty horse flirty scene was added in. They changed it to make Lauren Bacall's character bigger, but also because they took things out, some of the plot falls apart. <laughs> yeah. And also one of the major themes of the book is completely missing from the film. The, the film is a surprisingly faithful adaptation of the book for the most part, but it adapts the storyline while leaving out a lot of the themes of the book by cutting out some of the scenes they cut out. But the reason they did it was, uh, as you point out, Lauren McCall, she had been cast with Humphrey Bogart and to have and have not a couple of years earlier. And they just had this tremendous on-screen chemistry together. And in fact, they got married shortly after the big sleep was filmed and uh, Humphrey Bogart was in his late forties. And I think Lauren Bacall was like in her early twenties, make of that what you will. One of them was in the process of getting a divorce during this. That was film. Bogart. Yeah. So that they could be together. Yeah. 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 So yeah, people wanted to see the two of them. They were, it was very much like, uh, you know, the last time that I was really aware of a, a celebrity coupling, it was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. This is very much that sort of thing where people were as fascinated by the couple as they were by the films they made. In fact, the preview of this movie is all about the fact that Bogart and Bacall are in it. That man, Bogart, that woman, Bacall, you know, and then basically mm -hmm. the preview is mostly them kissing each other and looking at each other and not really about what the movie's about, which we have the preview on our Facebook page. And I'll definitely make sure that it's on the show notes in the, the blog post for this episode, because it is freaking hilarious. Yeah, it's really funny because it is, as I say, a relatively faithful adaptation of the book. But if you just watched, if you'd read the book and then you watched the uh, trailer for this, you'd be wondering how the hell they got that trailer out of this book. I, yeah, when I mean, we watched the trailer together and I was like, who the hell is Lauren Bacall playing? Because, I, you know, in the book, Vivian, there's no romance between Vivian and Marlo. It's just not a thing. There's mm. Carmen, who's definitely coming on to him multiple times, but he's super not interested. There's Agnes, who's, you know, not really a, a romantic foil. And Vivian, who's married in the book, you know, widowed, I suppose, technically. But, but still, she doesn't know. Well, I guess she does know that. She, Nobody but her knows that. <laughs> right. But, you know, so and but she's more antagonistical towards him. Mm hmm. Definitely not in a frenemies, enemies, lovers that used to be, you know, haters kind of way. And they changed that pretty dramatically for the movie. They made, they added this whole romantic thing. They added all the flirting. They gave it this happy ending. Uh, they also added like not just her sex appeal, but freaking, okay. In the book, Marlo does not like women. He, there's a line. He says, you know, women make him sick. He, he's just, he's kind of disgusted by women. It's either, it's. I'm not sure how much of it is just straight up misogyny, how much of it was like, he's a jaded guy. And then there's one internet um, rumor out there that says basically that 
Raymond Chandler was gay, so he didn't like women. Whatever. In the movie, though, Marlo is is not a hater of women. He's a he's a lover of women, and we have the women are just throwing themselves at him, and he seems uh, fairly receptive. If not, you know, he's he's kind of into it. You know, um, yeah. From what I understand, that was a very Howard Hawks thing. The book was printed in chapters in a magazine called Black Mask, which was a hard-boiled crime magazine. And it was also where the Maltese Falcon was printed, you know, which I think is worth noting. And the genre of the hard-boiled detective, it's very much a pulp fiction genre. In 1930s, 1940s pulp, there was a fair amount of misogyny. There was a fair amount of casual racism and so on. It's damning with faint praise to say that the um, works of Raymond Chandler were not nearly as bad as a whole lot of the other stuff that got published uh, in terms of misogyny. And the film really doesn't come across as misogynistic in large part because the women who are in it seem to have a lot more agency. And while they're certainly throwing themselves at Marlowe, it seems like they're way more interested than Marlowe is. You know, this is them going after what they want. So it, it plays so differently. Right. And there's an, an element too. this was filmed during the war, but then released later. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of things in it. You know, we have a woman cabbie, we have a, a bunch of other little tiny signposts that point to this being like during the war where there were more women and women's rights and women's empowerment was more of a thing before the end of the forties, when we started to head into the fifties, where we all took a big old colossal step backwards in terms of empowerment. But also you said that this was in the magazine but Chandler also what he did for his novels was he called can he said he cannibalized his short stories. He yeah. would take stories that he'd already published and then he would just like mush them all together, which it kind of makes sense. That's why the big sleep is two main stories. Like it really feels like two different stories kind of put together. And it's because, Hey, look, it was a lot of stories put together. They're independent. They shared no characters. They had some similarities that made it logical to combine them. But still, uh, you know, that kind of explains a little bit of the awkwardness and Chandler didn't care because it was more about the process. It was more about the emotions and what was happening than an actual plot. He was not very concerned with the plot. (laughs) Yeah. So if I can, there's two things I'd like to say about this genre really before we get any deeper into this. Mm -hmm. And the first is a lot of people classify the hard-boiled crime books, uh, The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, Red Harvest, The Dane Curse, um, and so on. A lot of people classify them as mysteries, and a lot of them are genuinely mysteries, but they're not mysteries in the same way that you know people think of Miss Marple or Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Perrault or Ellery Queen would think it. The um, detectives in these stories, they might be a little bit tougher than average, but there's people tougher than them in the stories They're They might be a little smarter than average, but there's people smarter than them in the stories. They do what they do through a combination of experience training and just basically being tough old coots who stick it out. Um, and so if you're the sort of person who wants, you know, the cozy mystery, you want the uh, end of the story to, have the detective explaining how they reached the conclusion, the brilliant deductions. Don't read hard-boiled crime. You're not going to get that. 
hard-boiled crime was kicked off by writers in the early 20s some would say even pre-20s but the writer who arguably really put it into the form it would eventually take was Dashiell Hammett who had actually been a detective Uh, he'd worked for the uh, Pinkertons and one of his most used characters is a character just known as the Continental Op who worked for essentially a generic version of the Pinkertons and they're about the detective going through his job, figuring out how to actually do the tasks that he's been assigned to do. And they're usually not about solving crimes because, you know, there are police detectives for that purpose, but rather like in this case, Marlowe gets called in to deal with a blackmailer. They might get called in to act as a bodyguard, things like that. They may end up in a mystery, but that's not usually how it starts. The other thing that I wanted to um, mention is a lot of people conflate the hard-boiled crime genre with the noir genre. And I think part of the reason for this is that there's the film noir genre, which is a third distinctive thing, but the stories that were adapted into film noir frequently come from both the noir genre and the hard-boiled detective genre. Noir is about people who are generally the victims, suspects, of per- or perpetrators of crime. A great example is Double Indemnity, where you know an insurance salesman and the wife of one of his clients, um, you know, decide to murder his client as a way of collecting on insurance, and everything goes downhill from there. Uh, characters get in over their heads, and noir stories tend to be just completely nihilistic. There is no happy ending. Everybody's screwed. That's it. The hard-boiled detective stories are different in that the detective character has a lot more ability to cope than the protagonist of a noir story. And, you know, even in this story, The Big Sleep, which the novel has a downer ending, but, you know, at the end of the novel, Marlowe does what he does because he wants to basically do something that at least can help out General Sternwood a little bit by keeping him from having to learn some disturbing things that he probably doesn't want to learn. In the Maltese Falcon, which is another story in this genre, Sam Spade finds the murderer of his partner, his partner who he hated, but he finds the murderer and has her arrested. And it's pretty clear that uh, things are not going to go well for her. Detectives do sometimes feature in noir novels, but they're never the protagonist. So, um, you know, a Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe story told from the angle of somebody who's gotten in over their heads and is getting, you know, just screwed. So like if the story were kind of told from the point of view of Joe Brody, that might be a noir, but it's told from the point of view of Philip Marlowe. So it's not. So I just want to make that distinction because people tend to conflate these uh, genres quite a lot. Cool. Thank you for that little historical and important bit part of the conversation for sure. One of the things that when we, after we watched the movie, you know, we both went and did our own research and I found a website, a blog called the flying trapeze. Oh, yes. Yes. I have. (laughs) I, I love the name they gave the big sleep. They referred to it as a screwball noir. Because while the book is very dark and very grim, the movie is at times just flat out goofy. 
Like there's a sequence where Vivian calls the police and Marlo takes the phone away from her. And then they engage in this back and forth where they pretend as if the uh, police officer they're talking to called them and they keep taking on different characters while they do the back. It's an extremely funny sequence, not in the book, completely out of place where it put in the book, but it's great in this film. Yeah, and it's it's definitely there because of the Bogart and Bacall aspect. It it, it just definitely changes fundamentally changes Marlowe's character. I feel like that I would that agree would not have happened in the book. Not just Vivian, but Marlowe himself. But yeah, the the rest of that quote from the the man on the flying trapeze. I I love that he loves this film. He calls it a screwball noir, and Marlowe is Sir Galahad in a 1938 Plymouth coupe who saves the honor of the Sternwood family while falling in love with one of the princesses. And yeah. it's an amazing review, and I will link it in our in our show notes for sure. The movie's plot doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense at times, but it is nonetheless often a delightful film to watch. Even when it's being grim, it's fun to watch. I mean, it's funny that you say that because it's, you know, a delightful film about blackmail and drug addiction and murder and then more murder and then a different murder. I mean, the body count is very high, but yes, it actually comes across as like funny. And there's like these weird parts, like at one point Vivian is in the gambling place and she's singing a musical number yes it is okay it is strange that's that's actually pretty common in films of this era uh watch like casablanca for example which in casablanca it makes a bit more sense because they are in a casino that has musical numbers as part of the entertainment but they do break the action for musical numbers in casablanca right again though it's just it's very different than the book right yes absolutely that's the thing and i i I like Hawks's interpretation, definitely. I think that, but it is interesting that he cared. Okay, so here's the thing. So Chandler has talked a lot about, he was more interested in the atmosphere and the characterization. He didn't really want an ending that answered, you know, all the plot holes and stuff. It, it wasn't, it wasn't about the plot, which you can see because there's, there's plot holes and there's things that go nowhere and yada, yada, yada. Who killed the chauffeur? We still don't know. We don't know. Like we think we know, but we don't really know. And and Chandler didn't even know when they were making the movie, Hawks's team like called up Chandler and they're like, okay, we can't tell by reading your novel that we're adapting, but who killed the chauffeur and why? And Chandler was like, hell if I know. It's like, okay. Uh, that's extreme death of the author, but sure. So anyways, so when Hawks is making this adaptation in Faulkner and, you know, the screenwriters, they're like, okay, we're going to add some humor to it. We're changing some of these major themes and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then they, they didn't actually fix the plot. <laughs> Do you know? No, what I- and, and in fact, they made it worse. So yes! it was interesting. <laughs> the first half of the film we were watching and it, it was very faithful to the book. I mean, most of the dialogue was lifted directly out of the book, at least for the first half. Mm-hmm. But they would say and do certain things that tightened the story up a bit. So it worked as a direct adaptation of the book, but things that were left a little bit murky in the book, like you could figure them out. They were there, but you had to actually stop and think about it. They just made explicit. And then the second half of the film things start happening where because they cut things out of the book, cut things that were in the book out, they just don't make any damn sense. But in the book, those things made perfect sense. And yet this book and this film are like on those lists of the best books and the best films. And they're, you know, very important and they're part of canon and like all of these things. And it's just, it, I, 
it irks me a little bit, but <laughs> I will, I will accept it for what it is. So I, as you know, I'm a fan of Raymond Chandler's writing. I, I really like the Philip Marlowe character. One of the things though, that really struck me as I was reading this, because I've read not all at this point, but most of the Philip Marlowe novels. And I've read a lot of Raymond Chandler's short stories where he wrote about different characters that were similar to, but slightly different than Marlowe. But if you go and buy the collections, they've inserted the name Marlowe into all of them. They were different characters initially. It was interesting that there's aspects of Philip Marlowe that are fundamental aspects of the character in later books as not as the character develops because you don't really get character development in the series the 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 series of books is written such that you could pick up any one of them read them in any order and they'd still make sense until you get to the last two or three where there's a couple of minor things that carry over but there's certain things that are kind of there in the big sleep but really get developed as Chandler figured out who he was writing in later books. You know, in The Big Sleep, it's not clear once the situation with Geiger is settled, why Marlowe keeps going after Regan. They actually give him more motivation in the film by indicating that he actually knew Regan previously. Mm -hmm. So he's got a personal stake. Um, his motivation in the book seems to primarily be a combination of everybody seems to think he's trying to figure out what happened to Regan and taking an interest in him because of that. So he feels compelled to do it, but also, you know, he seems to feel like he owes it to Sternwood to find out what happened to Vivian's ex-husband who general Sternwood genuinely liked, but both of those concepts aren't really very well developed so it's like he just keeps looking for no reason other than to look in the later books it becomes pretty clear as Chandler gets better at writing this character that Marlowe genuinely likes people not all people he sees a lot of people as being corrupt but he's got a soft spot for people who seem like they might need some help and this is sort of like the uh the beta version of that where it's not quite clear why he feels any loyalty to Sternwood, but he does in later books. Like a great example is uh, the book, the high window where there's a young woman who's not really connected to the major plot, but it becomes pretty clear that she's in danger from people that Marlowe's encountering. And so one of his big motivations in the book becomes protecting her, not because he feels he owes her anything, but because if he doesn't do it, nobody will. Yeah. And, and like you say, we see a little bit of that. He's definitely, he likes the general. He wants to help out the general. And then there's the the little guy, <laughs> uh, is Harry, right? Harry Jones. Yeah. Harry Jones. Harry Jones is this little guy who <laughs> Marlo likes. Marlo likes him a lot. Just after their first meeting, he likes him because he's little, a little man in a big man's world. He likes him because Harry tries to light a cigarette and it takes him three tries. And then eventually, you know, has to do it with his boot, you know, with the lighting the match and stuff. Um, Marlo likes him and then Harry's killed and Marlo takes it kind of personally, you know, and, and partly also, I think, because he was literally in the next room and he, he heard the murder, but he couldn't do anything about it at the time or he chose not to kind of depends on how you read it. I would yeah. say, uh, but he, he lets this murder happen. He's a witness to the murder, however you want to put it. And so then he definitely takes a, a stronger sort of glee in killing Harry's murderer down the road than he would have probably, you know, without, without the fact that he liked Harry. 
Right. Well, and Harry, he actually strongly dislikes until until you know he sees these kind of foibles. He's like, okay, I kind of this guy's kind of weirdly adorable, but he decides that he has to do something to help the situation. When when he realizes that Harry's act as he died, he died protecting Agnes from right. the hitman. Well, I mean, he liked him before that. He says right. it's one of the few times we actually get Marlowe's emotions about something. He's like, I liked him, you know, early on. But then, yes, right. his motivation, too, is like he realizes. And so let's talk about that death, because in both cases, Harry's uh, murdered by poison. Canino, by, yeah, by poison. And by Canino. And Canino's asking him, like, where's Agnes? And and Harry's like, oh, she's it, you know, one, two, three, Alphabet Street. And Canino's like, whoa, now I've killed you. And then, you know, okay. And then Agnes isn't actually there. So we know that Harry lied and thus saved Agnes's life. And there's a couple of interesting things about it. In the book, he it just, he's, he takes his drink. He's kind of goaded into taking the drink because Canino's like, oh, I bet your girlfriend would drink your the drink, you know? And he kind of, you know, it's a little toxic masculinity in the movie though he laughs as he right as he dies and it's yeah. because he you know in the movie you can tell that he realizes a that he's going to die but that he's 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 winning because he's tricked this bad guy and given him the wrong address and we don't get that same sort of satisfaction payoff in the book and it's later that marlo realizes oh okay he lied and this is this and blah 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 and all of that happens so I thought that was an interesting change. It's very small, but it, I think it, it matters. It matters to the character of Harry. It does. Another change that they made, and actually, I think that's a really good one too, because as we pointed, as we said earlier, the movie is like weirdly delightful for a violent movie about evil people. But you have things like that where Harry gets a little victory. He knows that he succeeded. You know, his goal was to protect Agnes, and he did. And so even though he's dying, he's won. And that is something that's missing from the book, which is a much more pessimistic story. Yeah, the book is a lot more about everybody's corrupt and Marlo's like just sinking in this corruption and he's trying to, yeah. you know, a little bit of of goodness in this bad, crappy world. And the movie is definitely not that. <laughs> yeah, I, and again, as Chandler continued writing Marlo, Marlo became... A character who, unlike, say, Sam Spade, who was just a cynical, possibly mentally damaged person who was just out for himself, or like Mike Hammer, who's another one of the really well-known hard-boiled private detectives who's frankly just a sociopath, Marlowe really is developed into a character who's at heart a romantic, but one who keeps kind of getting hurt by the world, so he's developed the sort of cynical cover but he himself still has this kind of core of wanting people to be good in the book the big sleep uh, one of the scenes that was cut out of the 1946 release of the film was a confrontation between well actually a set of confrontations between Marlowe, the district attorney and the chief of police mm -hmm. and it's interesting because on the one Which, hand can i just say thank god there's so many freaking characters in this and so many convoluted plot lines that I'm, I'm actually okay with a few fewer characters, even though I, the, the scene that's cut out, one of them is the, well, yeah, see Timmy, let me explain to you everything that's happened, which could have been beneficial, but they, they, they didn't well, want to leave it in there. Right. But where I was going with that wasn't so much that, yes, it did explain things, although yeah, that's absolutely true. It did help explain things, but that scene really get, got into 
what was happening in Chandler's view with the uh, authorities in Los Angeles at the time he wrote. And in the 1930s, Los Angeles was known for being a place where it was given the size that the city had grown to fairly quickly. It was a surprisingly safe city. It was considered well-policed, except when it came to vice. So prostitution, pornography, drugs, and so on where the police were reputed to be getting a kickback. The police were also known for being a little over trigger happy. What? And that's all stuff that comes up. So it, it's funny because on the one hand, there is absolutely this misogyny in this book that does not read at all well to a reader today. And you know, to a lot of readers, even at the time, I doubt it would have. On the other hand, like at one point, the chief says something about, you know, well, my police are doing the best they can. And Marlowe's response is, yeah, just like how they shoot and kill someone who's, you know, committed a minor robbery. And it's like, wow, that's eerily prescient for, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, those problems aren't new. They were occurring in the 1930s. And in later books, there's actually a distinct racial element to them that comes up as well. You know, it gets the idea that there is this corruption of people in positions of power and that you can't just trust them. You have to verify what they're doing and you and somebody has to keep them in check, which is a very, you know, it's an idea that plays very well. It's cynical, but it's also an idea that really plays very well today in, you know, the era of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Even though the misogyny of the book plays very poorly in the era of Me Too. The other aspect that doesn't play, doesn't hold up, doesn't age particularly well is the homophobia. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay. I'm not going to say the line, but there's a, there's a couple lines. He uses a derogatory term pretty, pretty frequently. And then there is one particular line that is just really awful. It was, it mm -hmm. was awful. It made me make noise. I, as I was, I was it. sitting next to her when she read that line. And yes, it did. <laughs> I was like, whoa. He's like, oh, did you get to that line? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyways. And it's so dismissive and bigoted at the same time. <laughs> the, the gay man in question isn't completely powerless. Like he, he does things. He, you know, he does quote unquote manly things in that, you know, he does kill somebody and he you know, has a certain amount of ability conniving. He hides the body. He does this, you know, he foils some plans. He, you know, adds to the mystery. So he's not a, a character where that things just happen to. He is an active character. And he even, you know, he gets a couple punches on Marlo. He, like I said, he shoots somebody. So it, it's interesting that even with all of that, Marlo still has this such a negative opinion of him that carries through. And then, of course, because of the Hayes Code, we they just were like, oh, we can't have him be gay. That's not a thing that we can have. So they just really don't even touch on in it. In the film, he has absolutely no motivation to commit murder he commits, whereas in the book, he's got a very clear motivation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which is another way that the movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you're like, but why? And also, you know, the, the, there's a scene where he goes into the bedroom and there's candles and, and whatever. And it, it lacks the emotional weight because there's not the two bedrooms, you know, and, mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. So, uh, yeah. And I'd like to actually talk about this a little bit too, because, and again, this is a damning with faint praise thing. 
but Chandler in a lot of his writing he's absolutely guilty of the homophobia the misogyny and the racism that is common of writers for the pulps so I'm not doing like what people do with H.P. Lovecraft to say well he wasn't really racist no he was but at the same time he allowed some of these characters to have more to them so like a, a good comparison would be Joe Cairo from um, the Maltese Falcon. In the Maltese Falcon, Joe Cairo is gay and he has a young lover who's also his bodyguard. And Joe Cairo is basically just this thoroughly corrupt person. And this is very common for LGBT characters when they show up in hard-boiled crime books of the 20s through the 70s, really. But uh, he's perfectly willing to sell out his young lover, who is in turn perfectly willing to take shots at him. You know, it's one of those things where it's like a uh, they're hot for each other because, of course, they are. It adds to the luridness of the story. By contrast, in The Big Sleep, you know, Geiger, who's not even a character because he's dead before you, you ever see him. Well, of course, he's the pornographer. He's gay. So, of course, he's going to be a sexual deviant pornographer. So that's absolutely in line with that uh, thing. But Carol, by the way, you mentioned earlier that Carol is a man's name. My father's middle name is Carol. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I know, but it, um, it's not a common. No, it's not common as men's man's name. But uh, yeah, it it's, was more common at one point in time. Anyway, Carol, though. He arranges Geiger's body in a very respectful way. He tries to avenge Geiger's death. He even, you know, as you point out, although there is a line about him basically not being able to stand up to a real man, um, he does actually stand up pretty successfully to Marlowe for a while. You know, he's got a clear motivation. He actually seems to have genuinely loved Geiger and wants to do right by Geiger. So there's a little bit more complexity to this character, even though you're absolutely right. There is blatant homophobia here, but there's more complexity to this character than there were for similar gay or lesbian characters in other stories of this genre. And I just always found that kind of interesting, but it is damning with faint praise because it, 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 it's definitely homophobic. There's no way around it. So here's a, here's a thing that I didn't catch and I don't know why, uh, but I, I just didn't. But what I read on the internet was that Joe Brody, the grifter was African-American. And I guess I just missed that in the description. I didn't catch that either. Uh, obviously, he wasn't cast as African-American in the movie. No. But apparently, according to the internet, a close read of the book says that he is African-American, which changes his character a little bit, but is it I, kind of interesting I as well. I think he was described as being brown-skinned, but again, at that mm -hmm. point in time, it wasn't unusual to describe tan white people as being brown-skinned either. So that's how right. I took it. Right. Uh, for some reason, and I know Brody's not an Italian name, but in my head, he was Italian. I don't know. Huh. But okay. yeah, with, with the brown skin. So yeah, interesting. So the other the other thing that is kind of par for the course, kind of like this misogyny and this, this homophobia and like, you know, this racism that's definitely there. And you can say it's part of the definitely just the context of what was being written in that time. We have this trope of the mentally ill person 
being violent and you mm -hmm. know that's the reason why in carmen in the book carmen is epileptic which we don't really get until the very end and but it but it's a thing and marlo picks up on it pretty quickly he realizes what it is when it happens right in front of him and then there's like this whole thing like you know she needs to be sent away you know all of this stuff and that's you know why she couldn't deal with rejection also, she was epileptic and, you know, so she's a couple of things and she was just a horrible person to begin with. She was conniving and overly sexualized and, and gross and flirty, but in a disgusting way. And Marlo just, he's not into it at all. And then she's epileptic. Okay. In the film, they change it and they make her just basically a, a drug addict. And they also strongly imply that she has a whole lot of impulse control problems in the film, right. which might be why she's a drug addict. Exactly. But also, you know, she felt super young, like she's a teenager, spoiled teenage, you know, girl who's bored and has no impulse control and is used to life being a certain way. And so it, it's a very different aspect of Carmen, but they also used her a lot less. I, I thought it was interesting in the book we have, you know, the, the kind of the second climax happens between you know carmen and marlo she's trying to kill him and he's given the put blanks in the gun and and all of the stuff and in the film the fact that she's the one who killed is it regan because it's not or, mm -hmm. yeah it's regan is it's just disgust between marlo and vivian and she's just not even it, am i correct that her last scene was when he kicked her out of the of of his bed i think that's correct and one thing like she has a seizure in the book and it's stated that she's had other seizures in the past. Mm -hmm. She might be epileptic. There's a number of different neurological conditions, some of which uh, you know, can include other elements that would be considered mental illness that can cause seizures. However, it's not uncommon, even in some more modern fiction, for somebody having epilepsy being a sign that they're mentally ill and as somebody who is epileptic that pisses me off <laughs> because okay if for any listeners who aren't aware there's a difference between a neurological illness and a mental illness there is overlap schizophrenia is both okay but epilepsy basically means that your brain occasionally will generate way too much electrical um impulses yeah impulses and try to fry itself and you can have a seizure as a result it's usually controlled in my case it's controlled extremely effectively through medication and for most people it can be controlled at least to some degree but it does not cause delusions it does not cause impulse control it doesn't do any of those things it makes you have seizures other than that doesn't actually change any other aspect of your brain. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's something to be said for a lot of people have side effects of the medication that can cause negative sure. acting out, you know, anger issues, depression, all of these things, but that's the yeah. side effects of the medication, not the illness itself. So, right. And, and even then most people who are on the medication don't have severe side effects some do though enough that it is something that if you are on the medication you need to keep an eye open for right like I mean, for me i don't really have particularly severe side effects i just don't like being in crowded rooms <laughs> i mean fair <laughs> so one other thing just i'm on my soapbox now a lot of people think of epilepsy as being something that you're born with that's 
often not the case. There are people born with epilepsy or who have epilepsy in childhood. According to my neurologist, most of those people outgrow it. If you have epilepsy as an adult, some people will have it as in childhood and will still have it when they're an adult. But most people who have it as an adult develop it in their 40s or 50s due to too much stress and a lack of sleep. So if you have workaholic tendencies like I do, you might be giving yourself epilepsy. Be aware and take your vacation time. That's right. And while on vacation, read hard-boiled detective novels with your partner. <laughs> right. Like we did. Okay. Can I segue into something? Yeah. Or, okay. So another thing that I wanted to talk about with the book specifically, because it, it is more specific to the book, is that the book is written in first person, mm-hmm. even though there are passages that are like near objective descriptions, although there's a fair amount of judgment and even some fairly beautiful poetic lines in the descriptions and uh, Marlowe in quotes, Chandler Marlowe really likes his similes, but there is also a lack of, I felt this way, or I thought this, it's more just his actions. And we get what he's thinking or what he's putting together based on watching his actions even though we're in the first person and normally in a book when you have first person narration, you're a little bit more involved in the thought process and in the brain. And I thought that was, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Personally, I found it a little off putting. Yeah. One of the things, part of that is to a degree, the genre, I think like uh, the book I'm reading right now is red harvest, which is another national habit. And ah, you hang your head because you're going to have to put that in the notes. Uh, but it's one of the continental op novels written by Dashiell Hammett, and it's also written in the first person. You also don't get a whole lot of the main character's feelings and so on. You get more of his thoughts than you do in the big sleep, but it's still much more descriptive than it is anything else. Part of it also is I think that you know Chandler was still trying to figure out how to write Marlowe at this point in time and in later books you right. do get more of Marlowe's interior thoughts and feelings. And, and that's fair. It's just yeah. a writing style thing. You know, when I write yeah. my book reviews, one of the, one of the things, that, one of the aspects of my aspect method of writing book reviews is talking about writing style. And this is a writing style that I personally bumped on yeah. a lot. The lack of, you know, the first person narration, but the lack of actually being in your brain and these plot holes where the plot wasn't very important. That is a narrative style, writing style choice that personally bothered me. Obviously mm-hmm. it doesn't bother you. You read a lot of stuff in this genre, but as somebody who hasn't read very many things in this genre, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. This is why. <laughs> One of the things that really I found interesting is the book, as you point out, this book was written in first person. And as you point out, Raymond Chandler loved his similes. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the film adaptation is that it does not have the first person narration that so many films in this genre do. But the other really well-known film in this genre, The Maltese Falcon, the book is written in third person. However, the <laughs> and Dashiell Hammett, who wrote The Maltese Falcon, did not go in for all the similes that Chandler did. However, the film version of The Maltese Falcon has the first person narration full of similes <laughs> it's, yeah that that is interesting and uh i remember after we finished watching the film i just kept thinking huh i, I was sure that this also had the third person because the maltese falcon did so of course they're going to do that with this one but no 
No, interesting. You know, a theme actually that's in the film that plays, we touched on this a little bit, but I think it bears a little bit of uh, more thought is the way that sex is treated in the book versus in the film. Okay. Because the book, as you pointed out earlier, you know, what we get, you know, what allusions we get to sex are that Vivian keeps getting remarried and going through husbands, you know, like it's going out of style that Carmen will jump into bed with pretty much anybody who catches her eye. And, you know, Marlo's disgusted by her. And then of course, pornography is the other place where sex is, you know, addressed in the book. It's, you know, done in a very sleazy way with it all being, you know, undercover and being done by questionable characters and used for blackmail. The movie, on the other hand, is in a very 1940s way, a very sexy movie where the women are down for it. The guys think this is fine. It's not just sexy. It's sex positive. Yeah. And like I saw this movie for the first time like 16 or 17 years ago, back when uh, Netflix had actually just gotten started and you got everything by mail and you watched the DVDs. Kids. DVDs are these circular round discs that you had to put into a computer type structure in order to watch your movies. Okay, continue. So I saw I saw this movie 16 or 17 years ago, and I remembered three scenes. I remembered Marlo talking to Sternwood at the very beginning of the movie. I remembered the car being pulled up out of the water at the pier. Wow. And I remembered the bookshop owner who seduces Marlo. And I found all of these, uh, almost okay. everything. <laughs> I mean, okay, first of all, two out of the three of those are like non-consequential, right. unimportant, and actually like all of them are not very important scenes. But because I know you in real life, the bookseller is... <laughs> I just say... Matthew has a type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're the kind of weirdo who's going to listen to the Ghost Apology podcast and wonder, gee, what does the Ghost Apologist find attractive? Watch the bookshop scene from The Big Sleep because the woman who runs the bookshop, not the fake bookshop, but the real bookshop who seduces Marlowe. Oh, yeah, that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> but just in my defense, <laughs> every article I found that discussed this movie brought that scene up and every one of them said so there's the big bogart bacall thing and they were trying to show their chemistry and yet the sexiest scene in this movie is with the unnamed bookshop owner yeah i mean yeah <laughs> I, we have a we have the same type in in terms of that because i definitely enjoyed that scene as well uh i didn't like the fact that she had to take her glasses off to suddenly I, be cute I'm, to I'm totally with you there because frankly those glasses were pretty good on her <laughs> however <laughs> but you know throughout the book you've got that you've got the horse race uh discussion which is <laughs> like they're slipping it past the censors. I don't know how the censors didn't catch what they were actually talking I mean, about. <laughs> I, these censors, man, it's it's almost like they have to be like, this is a gay man doing gay things and be like, oh, no, 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 can't do that. In Rebecca, you literally had a lesbian lady going, 
I'm a lesbian and I like touching her panties and the censors are like, nope, seems legit. <laughs> like yeah. no problem here. <laughs> and now we have Bogart and Bacall being like, hey, you know, you want to ride me like a horse? And I, I you know, it depends on who's in the saddle and yeah. I mean, you know, ride me <laughs> it, hard and put me up it, wet. Like, dude, it was it there. was not subtle but even like the the adorable cab driver you know mm-hmm. she helps marlo tail brody and then as he's getting out she hands him his card and says hey if you need a cab driver you know give me a call and he says yeah are you available day or night and she says oh call me nights i'm not working then yeah <laughs> it's like i'm your gal she says yeah for sure but for sure. yeah it, the the movie is def it's weird to say about a 1940s violent film noir movie but it's a sex positive movie (laughs) yeah it's it's weird but all of those women are empowered in a way that they're very clear like this is what i want and i'm not being coy whereas we have carmen who's like i'm gonna suck on my thumb and like fall into your arms and and so you you have this this type of dichotomy versus like the strong sexy woman who's empowered and then the one who's playing and being coy and coquettish Mm. and and that kind of stuff which marlo has like no time for and basically you know he's falling for vivian and the point where he just like you can practically see his heart on is when she looks real good doing you know violence and standing up for you know at the end with this big fight scene and she you know helps him out in a jam and all this stuff and he's just like yeah you looked real good doing that and it's like okay so you want a woman to be forthcoming and empowered and also like able to you know handle some shit and you know, stay cool under pressure and like all of this stuff, not be the simpering flirt, you know, slutty girl. So that's and from interesting. What, what I understand, um, Howard Hawks was known for his rather lavish parties, which were rumored to sometimes fall into orgies. And he, I don't know how much of this is true and how much of this is just, you know, rumor, but he is said to have had a very definite type of woman who attracted him. And w- I'm not, uh, I, I know I've seen other Howard Hawks movies for the life of me. I couldn't tell you which ones, but I, in reading about this, it kept coming up that women like this are common in Howard Hawks films. Yeah. And apparently it's because this is what Howard Hawks liked mm. himself. Well, even like at the gambling hall, you had the two cigarette girls, you yeah. know, and they're, you know, being funny and helpful but not simpering, you know, yeah. they're, you know, so, but also very sexy in their little cigarette girl outfits. So in black, well, Vivian is in white. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I, I picked up on as we were watching the film was that there's a lot of things that happen in the, in the book that are alluded to in the film, but you never actually see in the film, like in, in the book at one point, Philip Marlowe goes to visit the missing persons bureau of the LAPD. Mm-hmm. And that also brings in, you know, issues of corruption because it becomes clear that the police officer he talks to is on the take at the same time, the police officer is good at what he does. And so it creates this sort of, you know, you can have corruption next to competence and it bothers Marlowe that the corruption's there mm-hmm. in the film at one point, 
Eddie Mars and Marlo are talking and Eddie Mars makes a comment about, I know you've been to the missing persons bureau. And it, he says it in a way where, you know, we're now informed that happened, mm-hmm. but the film would have benefited from seeing it. Right. <laughs> not, not just because of the themes, but because, you know, well, what does it mean that he's been to the missing persons bureau? We knew because we'd read the book and we know what went down. You know? well, and it would have also just shown that he was doing more of his homework because the only time we yeah. really see, I mean, we see Marlo doing detective stuff at the beginning. Like he's like, okay, I'm going to go investigate this bookseller. So I'm going to go to the library and bone up on my knowledge of first edition so that I can go into this bookstore and test them and make sure and see if they're actually, you know, legitimate bookstore. Okay. He play acts a foppish type of character when he does this in the movie he just seems to just do that instantly in the Mm -hmm. book he's kind of cased the joint a little bit and kind of figured out how what's going to play here but we do see him like doing some research right we see him like kind of putting things together but a lot of it in both book and film he just seems to freaking luck into stuff oh i'm here and this murder's happening oh i'm here at this house oh a murder's happened oh and now this other thing has happened oh and then the phone rings or, and now somebody's at the door and now somebody else is at the door. And it, it, like you said before about it almost being screwball comedy, it's true, but it also just, it, cause it's in the book and it's not funny in the book, but it's definitely a thing. It just keeps happening. He just keeps being in the right place at the right time and accidentally, coincidentally figuring some stuff out it, and I know I, that I know that that a lot of it is just well, you know, he's there because he's there, and also Chandler didn't care about the plot, but it 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 bothered me. I, I'll say it did happen in both the book and the movie, but in the book there were times where he just happened to be at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, but most of the time he was actively trying to find what he ran into, mm. whereas in the movie he frequently just seemed to stumble into it. Also in the movie, we learn if you want to live, if you want to survive in Los Angeles, don't open the door when the buzzer sounds because somebody with a gun's going to come in. Yeah. Or, and don't go out the door when there's people with guns outside, because that's how freaking Eddie Mars died. Cause Marlo tricked him basically into going outside mm-hmm. and getting shot by his own men, which is a pretty big gamble. And and also has a little something to do with like who's doing the murdering here, right? Yeah. You know, uh, does, who does Marlo kill versus who does Marlo not kill? And part of that, of course, is the Hayes code, and part of that is because of a sympathetic character and because this movie was a romance, you know, with some screwball, almost slapstick stuff, but also murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another thing that was a, was a big difference was uh, loneliness as kind of a thing because the book Marlo was lonely. He didn't really have any friends. He didn't really have anybody. He starts off, you know, on a case, but he ends in a bar by himself. Okay. He knows the prosecutor guy and, mm-hmm. you know, he knows people and he's respected in some circles, but he's a very lonely, solitary character. And in the film, you know, Regan was an old friend and he's got this other friend over here and at the end he's got vivian and like it's it's just definitely he's a little bit more of a well-rounded sort of less lonely kind of guy yeah and in the uh in the book and in all the books up until the last few marlo is a loner and doesn't necessarily want to be but is Mm -hmm. 
whereas in the film the character in the film is much more of a traditional hero than um the philip marlowe of the novels is Mm -hmm. and he's a much more sympathetic character than the philip marlowe of the novels is the novel version of philip marlowe is interesting and he's compelling but he's not really sympathetic whereas this guy was okay so i have some fun little star trek trivia of course and what we have is harry jones in the film was played by elisha cook jr who is a familiar pint-sized actor and former vaudeville vaudevillian sorry here he was born in 1903 he died in 1995 you might remember him from star trek the original series first season the episode was called court martial and he played samuel t cogley so there you go that is your star trek trivia and if you are not a star trek viewer basically every movie made between about 1945 and 1960 that had a kind of cute little guy in it who usually played a uh, character who was a little overly nervous it was always played by this guy yeah he was in an awful lot of stuff Although he did play a tough guy in the Maltese Falcon. Oh my goodness. This this episode doubling as both the big sleep and Matthew's thoughts on the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) Now we don't even have to do the Maltese Falcon. We'll just point everybody right back over here to this episode. That's right. So, Matthew, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time i i will say i think they're both worth your time but i will give the caveat with the book that it does have many of the sins of the pulp fiction of its time you know we've pointed out the homophobia and the misogyny that's definitely there that said i think that marlo himself is a pretty compelling character and i really like raymond chandler's writing style i know you don't but i do I will say, though, that uh, if you are looking into this character, read one of the other novels um, first to see if one of the better ones actually might better suit your tastes. And if you like it, then go back and read The Big Sleep and see how it evolved. And the movie? The movie was definitely worth my time. It's Even though it follows the plot of the novel fairly closely, it is nonetheless a very different animal. It's an enjoyable film. It's definitely a product of its time in terms of the performance, the writing, and especially the action uh, choreography. So go in knowing that, but it's an enjoyable film. I liked it. Okay. I will say if you like this genre, then you've probably already read this book. So you don't care what I think. And if you don't like this genre, then don't bother with this book because it is such a obvious bit of the genre you know um but if you like the genre you're interested in the genre i guess it's a good example of the genre so knock yourself out i personally didn't really like it so there's that the but now i can say i've read it so there's always that there's you know oh yes i did read this now i now i can properly say that i didn't enjoy it as for the movie i feel like it is a classic so of course if you're into 
watching the classics and you've got your list of 100 best films and you're like, I must see them all before I die or before age 50 or whatever your personal milestone is, then of course, watch this movie. Don't expect it to make sense. Watch it for the the funniness, the sexual empowerment, the screwball comedy-esque. Do not watch it for the plot because the plot is convoluted and crazy pants. And I personally, I mean, I'm glad it was fun to watch it. It was fun to watch it with you because you enjoyed the book and, you know, had talked about this a lot, but I, I could have, I could have spent my two hours doing something else and probably been just as happy, if not happier. So that's my hot take. <laughs> Send your hate mail to pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com and tell me how I'm so, so, so wrong. Like you all did when I said that, you know, Rebecca wasn't the greatest thing ever. <laughs> can, you know, can I make a suggestion if somebody thinks they might be interested in this book, but might be put off by some of what we've said about it here? Uh-huh. Read The Lady in the Lake. <laughs> okay. The plot is tight. The character's better developed. And it really does get rid of a lot of the misogyny and it has none of the homophobia that is present in the big sleep. And did they make it into a movie? They did, but it's a weird experimental film (laughs) where seriously, you don't, I've not seen it, but I've read about it. And apparently the only time you actually see Philip Marlowe's face is when he's looking in the mirror because the camera is Philip Marlowe's eyes. So literally everything that you see you see through philip marlowe's eyes in the film Ah, i've not seen it but it sounds bizarre so you're saying it's a precursor to smack my bitch up i can get down with that oh okay well there's a reference you don't understand don't you remember that that music video where it's the person going through this whole day and doing all these violent things and at the very end they look in a mirror and you realize it's a woman the whole time and she's been no okay wow we grew up in different worlds. Okay. Well, so I guess that's the takeaway here is read a different book and then watch this movie. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew. (laughs) Tell the people how they can find you and what else you do out there in the wide, wide world of podcasting. Well, when I'm not busy digging perfectly square holes in the middle of nowhere or getting into arguments with project managers over what they are or are not allowed to do with historic monuments, I host the Ghost Topology podcast, which is at kmmamedia.com. Yes, that's right. You can find it. There's a Ghost Topology tab right there on that website, and you can find all of your exciting episodes. At this point, you will have done 21 episodes, I think, when this one comes out. This Big Sleep episode comes out. Um, They're all good. I think so. They're all totally worth a listen. And uh, people can find Ghost Anthropology podcast on Facebook as well. And I occasionally tag it in the KMMA media Instagram posts. So those are other ways that you can get in touch. Ghost Anthropology has its own Patreon. But if you're going to spend your $5 a month, spend it here, my friends. No, just kidding. Both podcasts would appreciate your likes, ratings, and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this podcast. So please, please do that so that other people will find out about both podcasts and come listen to them. So that's exciting. Thank you so much, Matthew. I'm I'm glad that we got to do this together. It was it was a 
better book than the last book that we read together, which was King Solomon's Minds. Yeah, this one was a lot lighter on the misogyny and racism than King <laughs> Solomon's Minds was. Yes, although I will tell you, I did enjoy the King Solomon's quote unquote mini series two part Patrick Swayze movie more than uh, Bogart. And I, I believe it was maybe referred that's to just... as Indiana Jones Light. Yes, it was. It was. And it had so many ambushes. Less Harrison Ford (laughs) and better for you. But Patrick Swayze. Yep. Anyways, that was fun. And you will be back to discuss Dig with me in a couple months. So I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Because I spend a lot of time digging. Can you dig it? Shaft. And straight. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're going to end now. Good night. Good night.